Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. I'm your host, Terry Yuan, and this series of episodes on beauty and lifestyle is sponsored by Masami, a premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. Masami is good for you with no bad ingredients and is vegan and cruelty-free. Masami's ultra-hydrating formula leaves your hair healthy, shiny, and manageable. Be sure to follow Engendered Podcast on Instagram to learn about the Masami Travel Pack Giveaway with their Makabu-infused shampoo, conditioner, styling cream, and shine serum. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Julie Raskin, Executive Director for Foundation for New York Strongest, the official nonprofit partner of the New York City Department of Sanitation. We speak with Julie today about her work leading New York City's efforts to reduce waste and promote zero waste through the organization's co-hosting of Refashion Week, its promotion of sustainable brands and products, and its advancement of policies and practices that help us build a cleaner and greener New York City. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Foundation for New York Strongest. It's the official nonprofit partner for the New York City Department of Sanitation. And I hadn't heard of it until I was preparing for this interview, as well as Donate NYC. So maybe we can just start with you sharing with us briefly the role and purpose of each of these entities. Sure. So um, it's not totally surprising that you haven't heard of it. We're a relatively new organization, and I think we really um, made a big splash with Refashion Week. Our other signature event is the food waste fair. So I think we've uh, become known in the kind of food waste reduction space. But um, as you said, we are the official nonprofit partner of the Department of Sanitation. And our focus is really on working hand in hand with the sanitation department, but really extending the reach of what we can do to engage New Yorkers in this ambitious goal to send zero waste to landfills. So the sanitation department is a city government entity highly functional, great operators um, make the city run every day by collecting trash and recyclables and now food scraps, um, clearing the streets of snow, street cleaning, kind of everything under the sun to keep the streets safe and clean. But that's, you know, taxpayer dollars going toward kind of fulfilling these critical core functions of a city. Um, The sanitation department is really leading the charge on the city government side to reduce waste in New York but recognized that it needed help and needed other avenues for reaching out to, you know, residents, everyday members of the community, but also brands and uh, companies that are located here, kind of reaching across sector and making this work toward this goal a really holistic cross-sector effort. So in terms of funding, is it partly government funded and then partly private donations and other foundations? It's it's primarily through donations, sponsorships, um, private funding. So it's a it's kind of a way of extending the reach of what the city does. I see. And is there sustainability in its existence funding wise? Um, I'm confident. Yes. Like I said, it's a relatively new organization. And I joined as executive director about 11 months ago. And I'm embarking on kind of our first uh, cohesive fundraising strategy and plan and finding, yes, I think we're in a moment where 
brands and companies, especially those that are based in New York, are recognizing that this is a problem that everyone needs to pitch in to solve. And so um, Refashion Week was probably a good example. I was able to find a few key sponsors that made the event financially viable and allowed us to do a lot more than what the city could have done. And I, I think that's a good segue to explain Donate NYC. I can't speak to it as in-depth as it, that's not the program that I run, but that's the partner we worked with on Refashion. Um, but that is an initiative run out of the sanitation department. And it's also uh, relatively young, but it is, it's a program and most people interface with it as a website or an app. And it's really this great way of connecting New Yorkers that have goods or food to give um, with those in need. So it runs a network of over 70 nonprofit partners that everything from Goodwill to soup kitchens. And um, it's another one of these programs. You know, I think I wish the city had the sanitation department had an enormous marketing budget. That's one of the things my organization long term is striving to be able to support. But I wish that every single New Yorker knew about this donate program, because every time I tell someone about it, they think, oh, that's great. I'm always and I've always got a bag of clothes in my closet. I'm looking for a place to donate to. So you can log on and find it's, you know, it's based on geography. So you can find the closest places in your neighborhood. Yeah, actually, I I downloaded uh, the app and I played around with it and I was really impressed. And frankly, I'm a little bit confused as to why the sanitation department gets gets to be so lucky in you know having all of these progressive ideas and innovative ideas <laughs> tested yeah. but then other agencies that also need them don't and i'm wondering is that just because every single agency is so decentralized in terms of management and leadership that there's no coordination amongst all of them to do the same thing yeah. to their ends that's a very good question, and I can't, you know, in my first stint in city government eight or nine years ago, I was working direct for the city and much closer to sort of the politics. I will admit now in my role, you know, I'm, I'm running a, a nonprofit that's kind of one foot in each side, so I'm less attuned to what's happening on kind of a cross-agency level, but I do know that initiatives, progressive initiatives are happening across the city and I do know that the donate platform, I know there were technical resources provided by the central city offices and the central city Department of Information Technology and Telecommunications. But I will say, I think this is an opportunity to um, to brag about our commissioner, Catherine Garcia, who is the head of the sanitation department. And I think she really champions these progressive programs and initiatives. And she really, you know, is kind of her brainchild to get this, my organization off the ground. So that we're, we're blessed to have her leadership and to be able to pursue these ideas. What are other aspects of your role that you're focused on right now? I've spent a lot of time in my first 10 months, I think, developing kind of some structures and strategy for the organization to grow, kind of knowing that we've got a bit of a dual purpose, both in engaging New Yorkers to really reduce their waste and, and participate better in our programs and sanitation programs like the recycling and the compost. But another, I wouldn't say it's another mission, but it's another set of strategies that we use is to help New Yorkers better understand how the sanitation department works and what it is that we do and who the people are that are doing this. And I think this is something you tend to think about and know what your a fireman looks like or a police officer looks like, and um, you know, those civil servants are celebrated in a way that sanitation workers aren't necessarily. 
So some of our work is around fostering this kind of improved relationship between the department and the public and bringing people in on, you know, whether it's tours of our facilities or hosting volunteer days where we have sanitation workers coming out with their families and working alongside, you know, hipster millennials (laughs) all having this shared goal. And actually, I'm leaving this afternoon. Why I had to to move our interview is one of the long-term goals of our organization is building a sanitation museum. So we're incubating this right now. And it, like I said, the permanent space for this museum is a longer-term project. But what we've started to do is kind of more pop-ups. We have a ongoing, I'd say, collection exhibit that was uh, sort of a, a happy accident. But in East Harlem, we have in the second floor of one of our garages is a a collection of over 45,000 items that a retired sanitation worker named Nelson Molina collected uh, when he was on his route for about 30 years in East Harlem. He found things that people had thrown out that he could tell just from the way he could shake a trash bag and hear what was inside, he could tell they were not trash and they were worth salvaging. It's in one of our facilities where the, the second floor is starting to give a little bit, and so we weren't parking our equipment up there anymore, and he just took over that space. Um, So that's called the Treasures in the Trash Collection, and that started to garner a lot of attention. And I love it because it kind of fits the goals that we have of the foundation of both bringing people in to um, interact with the sanitation workforce and, you know, one of our kind of celebrated retired workers, but also to really confront what it is that we as a city throw out that's really not garbage. So that's one component of what we'd like to put in our long-term museum. The the space that his collection is in right now is not a facility we'll be in long-term and certainly not suitable for a museum. Sorry, I don't know if I said this, but I'm going to a conference today in Chicago where we are invited to speak on a panel called No Roadmap, uh, Building a Non-Traditional Museum. So Wow. I can't even believe that he had space to collect all that stuff. Yeah. For New York City, real estate is so prime that yes. <laughs> which is why <laughs> we are we are actually relocating that garage facility in in a couple years, so we will need to find another home for his collection until we have our museum up and running. One of the I guess one of the initiatives for your foundation is zero waste initiative. And I know people have heard about it. You've mentioned the terms reduce, reuse, and recycle. I think for the most part, most New Yorkers have heard about it. But I think it'd be great if you can kind of give us your perspective on what the goal is in terms of changing behaviors around reducing, reusing, and recycling and achieving zero waste for the city. Yeah, sure. One other place I wish I could take every New Yorker is to the former uh, Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island. And that is closed now. It's been, it was initially closed in 2001 and then reopened temporarily um, to support the cleanup efforts after 9-11. But um, that was the city's primary landfill. So things that you throw in the garbage uh, would get, you know, trucked there um, through our collection efforts. And it's, it's just enormous piles of trash and as you go there and kind of learn about it from the experts, it's it's not going anywhere, right? You know, people think, I think it helps people realize that when you throw something away, it's not going away. Um, one of the problems we have now is, you know, due to kind of running out of space and, and political reasons, that landfill was closed. And so now we don't have a landfill in the five boroughs and we spend a lot of money to export our garbage to 
um, as far as Ohio, South Carolina, um, upstate New York, New Jersey. So it's going away in a momentary sense, but it's sitting in landfills. And the reason we we kind of took up um, food waste in particular is because we found that we, we do these studies every few years to see what's actually ending up in the garbage and you know how much of it could be recycled. And about 30% of what ended up in the garbage was food. And this was you know after we started our um, food scrap collection program. So whittling away at that 30% is, is a huge part of the challenge. And the extra problem with food waste is that when it decomposes in a landfill, it emits methane, which is a greenhouse gas which contributes to global warming. So I think the problem is waste sitting in landfills that's, that's not going away and is actually contributing to climate change over time. And so through these studies, what we have found is at this point, I think it's up to somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of what gets thrown out could be recycled through the programs that sanitation offers. So whether that's um, if you live in a neighborhood that has a brown bin, you can put your food scraps in there. If, you know, metal, glass, plastic recycling, paper recycling, the kind of traditional blue and green bins, um, we have an e-waste pickup program, a textile. And I think this is where refashion comes into play. Um, a- another big chunk of what ends up in landfills, around 6 or 7%, is um, clothing, stuff that could be reused or recycled and is thrown in the garbage. So the refashion week was a way of really drawing attention to that problem and showcasing the donate program. And in addition, that same team within sanitation runs a program called Refashion Bins. And that's a partnership with Housing Works. And you can actually, if you live in an apartment building with 10 units or more, or even if you work in an office building or even um, some retail stores now are, are having them, you can request that a clothing donation bin be placed in your building uh, or in the lobby or in the store and housing works and sanitation will come and collect that. So we make it really easy. I think it's just, there's still a knowledge gap of, you know, we, we've started, my organization has started hosting these zero waste workshops and we did one in January called Recycling Therapy um, that was one of our most popular because I think there still is a little bit of an education gap around what can be recycled and how. Part of that problem stems from the city not having sufficient resources to provide that education, you know, kind of as robustly as we might need to. Part of that stems from the manufacturers that are producing increasingly complicated disposable products that, you know, you may need to take apart to recycle properly or, you know, kind of continue changing the materials. And so it's it's another role that my organization is playing is trying to convene um, kind of every step of the value chain. Sanitation department focuses on what gets thrown away, but the problem starts upstream. So Refashion Week and the Food Waste Fair are, are, like I said, two of our signature events that really do a nice job of convening thought leaders and brands and kind of everyone who's part of the problem but also wants to be part of the solution. You mentioned the the brown bins for donating clothes. Sorry, brown bins for food. Refashion bins for clothes. I see. Enter a nice white, white color with some... So I looked into this recently, and it seemed like it wasn't automatic for every building. So for example, if you live in a co-op, you still need building approval for it, right? It's not like you can just request That's it true. and then have your landlord install and I, it. I'm frustrated that I, I live in a 500-unit rental building, and 
I have, with a group of neighbors, have been agitating to get both compost collection and the refashion bin. And, you know, the management company claims there's no space or it's too complicated. So I think this is where there is, we've created the option. I think there still needs to be more done on a policy level to really get us to that place where 1989 collection of uh, metal glass plastic recycling became mandatory. So it was a law. It was no longer something you could opt in to do. If you were a building manager, no matter whether you're a co-op or a rental, you had to make available recycling and put it out for collection or else you get fined. What are the reasons for objecting to adding these bins? Is it because of space or the additional labor cost? In my building, um, they claim both, and and I get it. I think, you know, it is additional labor to do sorting the right way. I think that there's a great argument to be made for that. You know, in a sense, those are green jobs. This could create uh, a more robust economy around the zero-waste initiatives. But it takes, you know, the willpower or the mandate from kind of top-down. So I, I know that in my building, there are signs that say, if you don't put the proper item in the proper recycling bin, you could be subject to fines individually as as um, the uh, tenants, right? And is that because the cost we, we passed on? Like, would the Department of Sanitation fine a building if they're constantly putting out recycling that is incorrect? We could, yeah. We do have an enforcement team. Okay, and now I understand. <laughs> it's real, it's real. Getting back to this concept of zero waste, what does that mean philosophically? Does it mean that everything that we consume can be eventually reduced, reused, or recycled? Yeah, I mean, I think the key is zero waste to landfills. So that, you know, 80 or 90% of what we throw out could be recycled. But I think, like I said, it even starts more upstream than that. So most of what we teach in our workshops is how to recycle, how to sorry, repurpose or reduce you know, we're celebrating now the second day of the uh, New York State plastic bag ban going into effect. And as much as people are you know, freaking out about it, I'm already seeing the behavior change of even you know, my friends and family starting to carry around a reusable bag, you know, whether it's, you know, carrying around your coffee thermos or whatever it may be. Or Refashion Week, I think, was the origin of it last year was primarily focused on the thrift and reuse sector. Um, this year we took it, like I said, my organization got involved and we made it more of a um, holistic cross-sector display and celebration of sustainability. But the um, runway show that we had last Friday night was all new and innovative styles that were made from clothes from Goodwill and other thrift stores. So, you know, upcycling, recycling, repurposing. Since you're talking about upcycling and recycling and repurposing, those are things, and of course, this concept of zero waste, and it's really about behavior change, like you're saying. And it seems like it's not just about getting people to do something differently because there's an economic cost to it. It's about getting people to do something differently because it's better for all of us. And and so what are you... I think it can be both, though. And that's where I like to find those examples. You know, obviously... Um, repurposing your wardrobe is <laughs> much cheaper than going out and buying a new wardrobe. There's a study around uh, food waste, and it, it, it showed, I think, particularly in the hospitality and hotel sectors, that every dollar spent in reducing food waste yielded a $7 uh, return on that investment. So 
I think when done right, this can be cost savings. And so, you know, it either that or, you know, that's the carrot approach or as you were talking about with your building manager, the stick of um, the fines. But, you know, it is, uh, I think people do it for a lot of different reasons and it's interesting. I, I wish there was kind of one methodology that worked for everybody, but I do think some people are motivated by um, the kind of pitching in and doing right by your community and, and the planet. And some people are motivated by truly like, oh, this is, you know, now carrying your bag around because you don't want to pay the five cent fee for a paper bag. Right. Speaking of the plastic ban, just to clarify what the law says, there's no more plastic for single use. So does that mean that I haven't gone to the grocery store since, but does it mean that when you have those plastic bags to put your fruits and vegetables in, those don't exist anymore? Those are still allowed. There are some exceptions. Okay. But when you're leaving the grocery store and you're checking out, there should be no more plastic. That is true. There is now a grace period. I believe it's one month for the stores to get rid of their inventory. I see. Of plastic bags. So some of them are still giving it out, but I've already been asked at every store I've gone to, they said, would you like to pay five cents for a bag? And um, fortunately, I'm able to decline. But Okay. And then after that one month grace period, these organizations are going to be, these stores are going to be fined. They're just, yes, exactly. Okay. They're not going to be going down, they're shutting them down or anything. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't believe so. It's, it's, um, it's being enforced at the state level, so I can't speak as intelligently to it. I don't think so, but. I mean, I'm very impressed that we actually got that bill passed even. And so, you know, getting back to this um, idea of changing behavior, because a lot of, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, there's going to be. Um, conversations that we're having with other folks in this space who are really proponents of clean living. And so we're really trying to, I mean, that's the kind of goal that I think we're moving society towards if they really are going to be invested. And to the extent that, you know, you are in a building with health and hospitals, part of your, I, I saw on your initiative is working with NYCHA. There's a lot of different organizations and partners potentially that you could work with that you really have to help them move the needle culturally, right? And like Department of Health, for example, I think that those are, it makes sense to really think about what your food intake is and your food waste is also like a public health issue Mm -hmm. beyond just nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what kinds of conversations are you having with your partners and other agencies? Interestingly, so we we work a lot with the mayor's office of sustainability, but I think there's interestingly that's the kind of the obvious one. But there are different approaches and different sustainability initiatives within each agency. The Department of Environmental Protection, which manages uh, wastewater, is uh, reached out actually because they are interested to learn how we started our foundation, the organization that I run. I think they see the opportunity there to grow something out of the agency that has that more flexibility to engage different partners. So I'm having a conversation with them next week, which I think will be great. But we we started talking because we collaborated last summer on um, beach cleanups. That was another initiative that we organized a beach cleanup in every borough. And it's, it's a complicated web of city agencies that try to prevent litter from ending up in the waterways. Um, you know, it's it's Department of Environmental Protection because when things end up in waterways, they clog the, the sewage system. 
um, the parks department because parks are managed by the beaches and us because when you throw litter away and you don't put it in a litter basket, it does end up um, getting washed into the waterways usually. So it's kind of all of us trying to address this and really the beach cleanup is the last step in the process to collect stuff that's unfortunately already landed there. But I think it forced, you know, we had uh, thousands of volunteers come out over the course of the summer, many of whom were not aware of the extent of the problem and were horrified when kind of picking through. And this is the Parks Department already is cleaning the beaches every day. And we were kind of going that extra mile to pick out all the plastic and the straws and the little stuff that gets left behind. But it really is kind of, it requires that coordination among agencies, but not just agencies, but also among nonprofits. We worked with community groups in the Rockaways, the Rockaway Beach Civic Association. We actually co-led these cleanups with a private sector company called Parlay for the Oceans that is taking the plastic that we collected and turning it into reusable shopping bags that they sell. They also take that plastic and make a line of shoes um, for Adidas. They're now doing uh, sunglasses, I believe, with Corona. So it really was a great example of how, you know, when you kind of bring all these entities together, we also were able to collect such an interesting cross-sector of New Yorkers who both don't tend to interact with each other and also don't tend to experience that hands-on <laughs> cleaning the streets. You mentioned the Mayor's Office of Sustainability. Is that essentially the umbrella arm that sets the policy and guidelines for what the goals should be? And then it kind of just, it's decentralized so all the other agencies basically have to figure it out how to do it. Yeah? that I think that's a, probably a rough way of explaining it. But they do, they are more of the policy arm and kind of the analysis and putting the data together and projecting out across the city. So I, I missed a lot of this because I was in, a, in the private sector for several years and kind of re-entered city government recently, but I believe the origin of the zero waste goal, which is a citywide goal, came from um, the Mayor's Office of Sustainability, obviously in close coordination with sanitation and with parks and with every agency that touches it. When you've been in these spaces with the other city agencies, have you found that your ability to influence the um, agenda has been limited by working for the foundation versus being a counterpart as a city agency kind of commissioner where you have the same level of authority and maybe even legal backing from statutes? I think that's a very good question. I think it's just different. I'm just not in necessarily the same conversations that our commissioner would be in, but I think the event that we hosted last Saturday, the the kickoff for Refashion Week, was at the Brooklyn Army Terminal, which is a space owned by the New York City Economic Development Corporation. So that was, you know, it's a very different way of collaborating with, they're a quasi-city agency, but they own an enormous amount of land and manage assets on behalf of the city. And going through that event together, they were so inspired and excited about what we were doing and some of the speakers that we brought in they're now looking at hiring somebody to do a waste audit and to kind of take a um, strategic approach to reducing waste uh, across the assets that they own. So uh, it's just maybe not not taking the policy approach, but taking, you know, whether it's incentives or kind of leading by example um, or convening. And I think that's exactly why 
commissioner wanted to create this type of nonprofit to basically sit outside of the world that she's operating in and extend the reach of the same, the same goals, but tackling them from a different perspective. As a nonprofit, do you have your own theory of change as to what kinds of partners you're going to be identifying as potential collaborators to help fulfill different aspects of your mission? We do. I'd say it's a work in progress. We're going through a strategic planning process now. I'm um, leading that initiative with the board, our board of directors and some of the key staff members. So it's been interesting because I think the organization launched you know, with a with a clear goal in mind, but um, it happened very quickly. It was um, a few years ago during Fashion Week, uh, in the September Fashion Week, and it was an initiative that the commissioner had wanted to happen, and I think the catalyst that got it off the ground was um, Heron Preston, who was a fashion designer, approached sanitation and said he had kind of become aware of the issue of waste and felt like if he wasn't in his job and in his role as an influencer doing something directly about this, he wasn't living life the way he wanted to. So he wanted to do a collaboration with sanitation, and they thought, fabulous, but this isn't really something the city can do, um, you know, he wanted to collaborate on making a line of clothing that was made from recycled sanitation uniforms and sell them. And we didn't even, you know, the city couldn't even have a bank account to kind of support that. Um, so that was kind of the, the fire that under the feet that got the organization off the ground. So I think the origin of it, it was a little bit like cataclysmic. And so we're now kind of taking a step back and having the opportunity now that we've done a lot of great things, kind of thinking about how they all fit together and getting a little smarter about where we focus our efforts so that we're getting the most bang for our buck or for our staff time. Or So you mentioned Her- Heron. Mm-hmm. How else do you identify influencers and brands or organizations to support your mission? Especially like for Refashion yeah. Week, there were so many I hadn't heard of. Did they contact you or? It was a, com- it was a total combination. You know, some, um, like I said, Refashion Week happened last year for the first time just from the Donate program. And they manage, like I said, this network of 70-plus nonprofits. So they they all know people. There were some of the events and partners that came through that network. They were also part of a campaign that was organized by a international nonprofit called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that uh, created a campaign called, I think, hashtag Where Next. And that was, I think, around the same time as the Refashion Week was getting off the ground. And that initiative was much more of a cross-sector collaboration around helping people reuse and recycle clothing. But it pulled in some of the private sector brands. That's how we got to know Eileen Fisher, for example. Um, So some of it was drawing on partners that we had. Some of it, interestingly, the recycle track systems, which um, I believe you heard on the panel, they were a partner of ours in the food waste fair because they, they're one of the um, haulers that service commercial buildings in New York City and have done a really great job of utilizing technology to really, really, truly show some clarity on what's actually getting thrown out and then how that's getting recycled. They do a lot in the food waste space, but they also coincidentally do a lot in reducing textiles. I think what I was excited about is the role that my organization played was bringing in those kind of not what you would think of on face value as being 
contributors to sustainable fashion, like not necessarily the obvious brands, but Intern is another one of them that was on our panel that's a inventory management software. And again, they're not you know, they're not putting together a runway show. They're helping brands behind the scenes stop waste before it starts, you know, stop producing too much and really better manage their inventory. So I liked that it was, they were someone that we were, I was connected to, I think through a business school connection. So it kind of runs the gamut. I think we were having a little bit of a recap meeting yesterday. Um, now that the dust is starting to settle from last week and just thinking about how we can be more thoughtful and kind of more egalitarian about opening up opportunities for partnership next year. Now that we know kind of what we're building, you know, creating a more formal call for proposals. Are there particular industries or sectors that are more resistant or more open to embracing sustainability than others? Like, for example, fashion. You know, you would think their bread and butter is buying clothes, right? And so if you're going to be making alternative suggestions, such as upcycling or recycling or going to consignment stores, that's going to impact their profit. And so you would think that that would be something that they would be resistant towards compared to other and then building management you mentioned, right? Yeah, it's not, I think it's not easy to to make a blanket statement about a whole industry because it's, it's also been surprising kind of who comes out of the woodwork and is finding that being sustainable in their operations is actually more profitable. If they, if you can make a higher quality product, you can sell it for more. If you can source um, this sweatshirt I'm wearing came from Zero Waste Daniel, who's one of another one of our partners. You know, he sources quite cheap his fabric scraps from a lot of the um, the factories and the brands around New York City. And, you know, his his clothing is not cheap, but it's somewhat affordable and awesome and doesn't look like it's made of scraps. And so I think clever people and leaders in the space have found that when they do sustainability right, it's actually good for the bottom line. Fast fashion, I have I have a question about that. I had read and I hadn't been able to find any kind of verifiable source to validate this claim that when you buy fashion online, certain retailers, I won't name who, <laughs> and, and you return the items, they just go into a landfill because it's too hard to sort or something like that. Is that like an urban myth? I, I can't speak to that. I don't know. But I know there are... Um, We've heard of that. I've heard of that. And I'm excited about... I was recently meeting with a, a journalist who, I guess she's she's a... She leads a nonprofit think tank around sustainability and fashion and is about to launch a book that's kind of the life cycle of a pair of jeans. And so I think her, her goal is to make this very relatable and understandable to an everyday person like me or you. I, I, I'm not judging you, but I assume you're not from the fashion industry either, and I'm not at all. So this is a lot of new news to me. So she's trying to make it very accessible to kind of a lay person. But, you know, I think I know she reached out wanting to go on a ride along with uh, one of our sanitation workers in the truck to just see how when people do throw a pair of jeans in the garbage, it actually how that ends up in the landfill. But she is really going behind the scenes and kind of doing that deep investigating. So I I know there's a few um, kind of savvy journalists who are exposing this, and I think that's that's great and is going to just lead to more accountability and more consumers supporting brands that are doing the right thing. Yeah, no, I love that idea. I think no, I don't want you to to. copy her, but you might want to expand it a little bit so that you include 
a day in the life of someone in New York, right? And then just what they bought, purchase, what they consume, um, how they're disposing of their food waste, mm-hmm. when they put on their clothes, where does it come from? So you kind yeah. of have that, you know, values st- uh, upstream yeah. look behind the scenes. I think Hassan Minaj in one of his yes. episodes, right? He did an episode where for one day you could everything that you purchase and interact with was somehow funded or created by Koch brothers. Yes, the Koch brothers. Okay. Did you see that episode? No, I didn't. It was very no. scary. And they 90% of our life we interact with something that they have built and that's why they are so rich. I think that would be really great if you could do that a spoof that that shows just how much we're influenced by external factors in what we consume yeah. and why we consume yeah. that, right? I do think that's it's a big part of the problem and a lot of what we try to do is just educate and empower because you just don't that's the thing is when I that's why I like to take people to a landfill or to um, the recycling sorting facility those are kind of opposite goals there the landfill you want to see that when you throw something away it's really just sitting there and it's you know in a place that's not too far from your home the recycling plant I like to take people to because most people have this aha moment of like oh it really it is real it really does work and when i put things in the right place they do end up here and get sorted into the right bales but it's uh, in lieu of being able to take every new yorker to every one of these facilities we're trying to think of ways to kind of do this at scale so i think you know on the downstream side we're working on kind of a interactive map disposal map as we're calling it so you can understand the life cycle of everything that you throw out where it kind of goes how it works its way through the system in our facilities but uh, i that's a great idea maybe that's something you could do for an episode <laughs> i was thinking of you know how everybody wants to get that bigger newer tv or not everybody not me <laughs> oh my god really <laughs> Like that, you know, there was a certain group of people who really cared about getting bigger TVs and then thinking about how to dispose of them. And then I don't know if you've seen those videos on YouTube where you see like kids from India, you Mm. know, like repurposing the electronics. And so that's what I know about electronic waste is that it's not recyclable. It gets kind of dumped somewhere, right? Probably exported out of the country even. Yeah. And then who knows what happens to it. I think, and I can't speak too intelligently about that kind of stream of disposal, but I, you know, some of it can certainly be recycled and we have a partnership with the e-waste recycler um, and I've seen it work with my own eyes, but I think that just speaks to the kind of when you flood the system with just too much material, you know, if we're buying new TVs every year, every couple of years, we're not suited to be able to recycle that all responsibly. I know the Department of Health had several years ago initiated a think tank around racial equity and building capacity both internally and externally at other agencies around incorporating racial equity outcomes into their work. I'm wondering if class equity and poverty, you know, could be something that is incorporated very deliberately because so much of for example, where things are disposed, where landfills are, if or not they continue, are are so related to environmental justice issues, right? Yeah, certainly. I think that's something we're always looking to incorporate more of with the foundation. But my first kind of exposure to sanitation department was when I was in college, they were producing the what's called the swamp plan, the solid waste management plan. I think this was 2006. 
and it was a way of redistributing the burden of waste facilities in New York City to have it be more equitable. Um, because as you said, a lot of you know, the landfill was in Staten Island, but a lot of the trucking and the transfer of waste in and out of the state was happening in the South Bronx. So we actually built out and you know, we're now, I think, either have completed or close to completing the final pieces of creating a system of transfer stations that are on the waterfront so don't require the trucking but are either um, moving things by freight by rail or by boat and are distributed more equitably across neighborhoods i learned about that in college as i was studying environmental justice and urban planning and then my first day on this job was the opening of the most recent waste transfer station that is built on the upper east side so it's 91st street and and the water um, and that was one of the in the last to open because it was the most contentious. It was kind of a not in my backyard um, sentiment. So we had a it was a very nice ribbon coven ceremony, and it was really exciting to me to kind of see the culmination of this, and to be joining the agency at this time when we are being mindful of it. Before we get to our concluding questions, I have I have to ask you one more question, which you may or may not be able to answer. Which, given your role, totally okay. I understand. <laughs> coronavirus. Is there a plan, the Department of Sanitation, to deal with an outbreak in the city and um, disposal of our garbage sanitation plan? Because that's a big part of making sure that the city stays safe and healthy. Yeah, of course. Um, I can't speak to that. Okay. (laughs) I totally understand. (laughs) Okay. So at the end of every conversation, I ask every guest a series of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Everything. What gives you hope? All the wonderful people that I work with. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Start being mindful. I think being sensitive and um, listening and observing before acting. Thank you, Julie. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Masami, the premium hair care brand with a unique Japanese ocean botanical called Makabu for the ultimate in botanical hydration. You can find Masami online at lovemasami.com and share your hair at lovemasamihair on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, or Twitter. And you can listen to this podcast on CastBox. Download it for free and listen to anything. CastBox, the best podcast listening app out there.